Father, we thank you this morning that we get to be in this place and to worship you. We thank you for your love for us that's been shown in Christ. We thank you for the gift of new life that we've been able to celebrate today in announcements of birth and and a child dedication. This is, it's a good thing to see the way that you work and bring new life into this world. As we open your word today, we pray that you would meet us in it. I pray that you would, you would help us today. That for those who need to be shown a need for a savior, that you would open their hearts. And for those who need the comforting peace of what Christ has done and his mercy and grace to us, that this would be a balm for their souls. And so we lift this time in our hearts to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to me to John chapter 18. Um, We are also in the midst of the Lenten season. And so um, if you haven't gotten one yet, there should be some available on the back, some Lent devotionals that each week has a recipe for community groups, has a um, a short devotional meditation that is written by a member of Redemption Hill with some reflection questions and also a song or a hymn that we we can sing together in separate places through the week. And so make sure you grab one of those as we continue to walk through Lent together. Today, as we come to John chapter 18, we come to the arrest and betrayal of Jesus. And so everything has been building toward this point. Last week, we looked at Jesus's high priestly prayer where he said finally that the hour has come. Like this is the moment of, of his mission of what he came to do. But today we also see um, an, an event in, in the Gospels, one of the only things that actually appears in all four Gospel accounts, and that is the failure of the disciple who would be the apostle, Peter. And so we're going to look a lot at Peter today, and a lot at his failure, and see what, we, what that brings for us. Failure is tough to talk about, because, because most of us, especially in a town like this, have a level of perfectionism to us. Now, it might not be like, some of you might be perfectionistic and know it, like the people around you know it, and you get like a little OCD about certain things, and so it becomes something that is, you're very aware of, but, but even those of you who, on the, who outwardly present as disorganized still have things you're perfectionistic about. I can say that because that's me. And, and so it's, it's difficult because it's, there's things that we know we're not good at, and so we can laugh about those and kind of t- be self-deprecating and funny about the things we know we're not good at, but then there's also the case that, that we will find our limitations in things, and when we reach our limitations and fail, it is hard. Some of, some of you are prone to fail quietly and learn your lesson and move on. Some of us are prone to fail colossally and publicly. And so here we look at Peter. Um, as I was looking, thinking about Peter, though, and his failure, I uh, had ringing in my head a, a commercial from, from back in the 90s um, that was well-known at the time. Michael Jordan had a commercial, and it had this voiceover that, of him like, working out in a gym. And it sa- he said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. I can accept failure but I can't accept not trying. If you've watched The Last Dance, you know that this is pretty true, but kinda. Michael was a perfectionist in practice and in games. It was his work ethic along with 
his natural talent and skill that set him apart and made him unquestionably the greatest of all time. <laughs> so, so in John chapter 18, <laughs> we read that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where he, had his, where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was spoken to fulfill, this was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter once again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the hour for Jesus has come. He's arrested. He's... Um, he, as he, as he is, he, they approach him in the garden. They all fall down in his presence and at his word. 
arrested in the night. He's brought in to the high priest, the, the father-in-law of the high priest, first, and then he was sent over to Caiaphas, the acting high priest, and, and he's brought into this questioning, a trial overnight, where he's asked to, to speak for himself. And what, when Jesus says, listen, I've spoken openly to the world, he's saying, everything I've said is in public, but he's also making a plea to say that it's only, and especially in Old Covenant law, it's only by the witness of two or three witnesses, the word of two or three witnesses, that anybody can be put on trial and be found guilty. So Jesus is saying, where are the people that have heard me speak? I've spoken openly and publicly. You should have no problem providing witnesses. He even asked the, the soldier, the officer that struck him, he said, well, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. So Jesus is inviting, saying, come on, you can, you can do this properly. But he's not fighting against them. And in, in contrast to Jesus' obedience, that he says, like, this is the cup that I've been given, and he knows this is the hour for which he came, we then also see Peter held up. Now, I think it's helpful to have some background on Peter's life in the Gospels up to this point. So, real quick, we're going to just walk through a survey of, of G Peter's time with Jesus. The first time that Peter met Jesus was in John chapter 1. And it's in John chapter 1, it says, One of the two who first heard John, the baptizer, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and, and, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. He says, You are the rock. Now, I, I think that this is, like, there are times, and Jesus does later on say, You're the rock on whom I'll build my church. We'll get to that point. But I do think there are times when we don't realize and don't read in just some of the lightness and humanity of Jesus with his disciples. Like, they had nicknames for each other, like any group of guys that hangs out for any amount of time would, would have. They hung out together for three years, and so some of them, Jesus, they were like, you guys are the sons of thunder. Like, tone it down. And Peter, he looks at him and says, okay, Simon, before anything else comes, he says, you're, I'm going to call you the rock. Now, we know somebody that's called the rock. <laughs> I don't think that Peter had that physique. I'm not going to make that argument because that is a very like, carefully produced physicality. But I also don't think Peter was a wisp. Like the guy was a fisherman and he was bold enough that when soldiers came, a detachment of soldiers came in the night with weapons and torches to arrest Jesus, he with one sword decided, I'm going to take these guys out. And I don't think that Peter, a fisherman, took that sword and was carefully coming at Malchus saying, I'm just going to get the ear. Like, he was not one of the three musketeers. I think likely Peter took a hack at his head and caught the ear when he dodged it. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus healed the man, Malchus. John is the only one that names him. But, but this, is, this is Peter. And he's, a, he's probably a guy that is... is good-sized. He is, he is not afraid of much. And we see that. So is in Luke chapter 5, Jesus meets the disciples, some of the disciples who were out fishing all night. They didn't have a catch of fish. Jesus said, hey, you know, he had been teaching. He said, hey, hey guys, why don't you just put offshore a little bit and cast your nets on the other side of the boat? <laughs> We've been out all night, but sure. And they do, and they are hauling in the nets, and it's so much fish that they can't, like the nets are straining and breaking. And so they brought their boat. It says in Luke 5 that Jesus said, um, 
do not be afraid. So, I'm sorry, Peter fell down. When that happened, he fell down in front of Jesus and said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Which is consistent in everything we see in scripture that whenever a human being comes into the presence of God, the first reflection is that in the light of his holiness, we realize our own sin. And Jesus' words to Peter and those with him said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Or in Mark, it says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Now, from this point and throughout Peter's life, this call that Jesus had of follow me came over and over again. In Matthew 16, that talks about a moment that, that was the first time that the disciples identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one, the son of David. And so he was asking them, he says, hey, what's the buzz that people are talking about? Who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say John the Baptist. And, and he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he goes on to explain that he, the son of man, has to die. And Peter rejects that. He says, no way. And Jesus' response to Peter is that he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so again, the call of Jesus to Peter is, follow me. It's not, Peter, try harder, do better, make sure that you do this right, make sure you take, this, uh, take up this fight. It's follow me. Now, back in John 13, we, we saw Jesus wash his disciples' feet. And if you remember in John 13, that it's an amazing chapter because Jesus like, takes off his outer clothes, gets down with a towel, and, and decides to wash his disciples' feet. Peter is, in typical Peter ways, he was like, I'm going to go, you know, he was like, no, this isn't what it should be like. He said, Jesus, you're not going to touch my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you can have no part with me. And Peter goes, okay, then wash all of me. <laughs> like, start with my head. And, he, Peter, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me wash your feet. But it, and he has dinner with his disciples. It's where he introduces the Lord's Supper and tells, uh, tells them to remember him, that his body is bread broken for us, that his blood is, is the blood of the new covenant that is given for us. And in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, we see that in, he tells Judas to go and do what he has to do quickly. Judas le left that place and Jesus said, gave a new commandment saying, you're gonna, you need to love one another just as I have loved you. And there's a fascinating point in John 13, 36, that Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going now, you can't follow me, but you'll follow me afterward. Can you imagine how those words would have sounded to Peter? Like, he'd been hearing Jesus for years now say, follow me. Hey, you realize that I'm the Christ? That's great. You've got you've to take up your cross daily and follow me. Peter, you've got to follow me. And over and over and over again, that call. And now Jesus says, well, I'm going to go away. And Peter's, where are you going? Well, where I'm going, you can't follow. Like, it makes sense to me that Peter's response, he goes, he goes, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Like, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, remember, that's four chapters ago in John's gospel, but it's the same night. 
that from that point, we head into what is called the farewell discourse, where Jesus is talking with his disciples. They hear him pray the high priestly prayer. They, come, they cross the Valley of Kidron and come, and, and come into the Mount of, onto the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. You need to realize that, that if, if you ever get a chance to be there and to see this, like the Mount of Olives is not a distant place. The Garden is not a distant place. When it is immediately east of the temple wall. Like you, you are looking at the temple wall of Jerusalem. They would have been in view of the temple. It's a small valley that is very vertical. And as you come out of it, the Garden of Gethsemane is down toward the bottom of the Mount of Olives. So they were just immediately outside the city. It was a place where John tells us this was a regular place where Jesus and his disciples met up. And that's where we just read that Peter and John were following Jesus into a nighttime meeting of the Sanhedrin the high, in the high priest's courtyard. And that, that's as far as Peter actually followed Jesus. In quick succession, while Jesus is being questioned, and while Jesus is responding to those questions, after correcting Peter, saying, like, Peter, put away your sword. There's a cup that I've been given to drink. After, after healing Malchus's ear that we read about in Luke, that Peter denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. Not like Peter said he would do. And Peter was like, no, I'm going I'm to die for you. I'll go anywhere with you. What do you mean I can't follow you now? And so he had all the confidence in the world, but, but he denied Jesus three times, first to a servant girl, then to a group of soldiers, then to the relative. Like, I don't know what relative, but I'm just going to call him a cousin, to Malchus's cousin. This is the last time in all four gospel accounts that we hear about anything about Peter until after the resurrection. He vanishes from the story for a few chapters. What a devastating blow to Peter and his life and, and, and walk with Jesus to the disciples. And we see it all the time that movements and organizations are devastated by the failure of a leader typically into like the triad of money, sex, or power. And, and Peter, it wasn't even any of those three things. It was, it was just a flat denial that he even knew Jesus. Now, John tells us that they were questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and so John at least was in earshot of all of that. We don't know how close Peter got, but it seems like that distance increased over time. But Peter, you know, this is, again, this is Peter, the chosen leader that Jesus said, you are the rock on whom I'm going to build my church. He's, he's one of the disciples that is, would be looking into the, to the, the, like the, the disciples would be looking to in the midst of the chaos of what's happening. That the rest of the disciples would have been wondering, like, what do we do? Where's Peter? How, you know, he, in the absence of Jesus, he would have been the one they looked to for stability. To know how to walk through Jesus' arrest and that he, his crucifixion. And now he had abandoned Jesus himself and he had failed the fundamental call that Jesus had given him. Follow me. And so here's what we can learn from Peter's life today. Even when we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. Hear this again. Even when we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. The three ways that we see that in Peter's life here. First, we will miss God's plan, but we can't mess it up. And so this is right from the beginning. You, I, actually, throughout the whole chapter, you see the contrast between human plans and God's plan. 
And look at the, the differences here. Like human plans, if we have plans for how we're going to get through something versus the way God brings us through things, if we are going to take an issue on or if there's a, something that comes to us, human plans move toward power. Like Judas, he said, you know what? I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to take some cash. I'm going to take these 30 pieces of silver, and I'm going to go to the powers that be because stuff's getting chaotic, and I don't want to be caught in the middle of it. But Jesus, in the midst of that, doesn't move toward power. He's the only one with any power. Like He spoke, and all of the soldiers with all of their torches fell on their face. Like At the word of the eternal word, people hit the ground in fear. And he was asking, Who, whom do you seek? Just like God in the Garden of Eden came asking questions, Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Jesus here, knowing full well what they were there for, says, who are you looking for? Human plans take control of a situation and turn to violence to do so. That's, I mean, Peter takes out a sword. If you read Luke's account, it's amazing to me because it's this, this passage that people, it's hard to know what to do with, where Jesus says, like, hey, in the past I told you don't take a money bag, don't take a coat, don't take a sword, but now it's time. Like, you got to be ready. Like, stuff's going to get crazy, so go ahead, take a coat, take your money bag. If you have two coats, you know, like, sell one and get a sword. And so, but then he goes on to say, this is the moment, like he, he tells the disciples and goes to a quote from Isaiah showing them this is the moment all of the plan of, that God has for redemption is about to happen, and the only thing that Peter heard was sword. And so Peter, go, Peter goes, uh, like he talks about, Peter, this is it, God's plan for redemption is coming to bear tonight. And Peter says, uh, Lord, we have two swords. <laughs> and sure enough, they show up with torches, and what does Peter do? Well, he uses one of those swords. And this is an aside, but God has given Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's what's been handed to the church. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has given governments and governing authorities the sword to execute justice. Whenever the church tries to take up the sword, people get hurt. And so Peter turns to violence to try to control the situation, but what does Jesus do? He brings healing and peace. Hey, just let these guys go. I'm the one you're looking for. He heals Malchus's ear. Human plans get defensive and prideful. God speaks through unlikely sources. Human plans lurk and sneak in the darkness like Peter <laughs> running around the edges and sneaking back by the fire. But, but God's plans are open and in the light. As Jesus says, like, I have, nothing's happened in secret. I've been teaching in synagogues, teaching in the temple. Like, you've heard everything. Human plans turn to denial to try to escape. But God's plans will lead us into courage and truth. You see, Peter missed God's plan. He missed the connection from the first garden to this garden. He didn't realize and, and couldn't comprehend that it was in a garden that the first Adam, had, his disobedience led all of humanity into death. And that now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the second garden, the second Adam's obedience was bringing us redemption to life. And so, Jesus here, the I Am, speaks. And it's, it, it is important what he says. Because when, when he says, whom do they speak? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. This is the same words that we see in Exodus from the God who saved his people from captivity and slavery to the Egyptians. 
that when Moses came to him, or when he came to Moses, and Moses had run away, and he came to Moses and said, Moses, you are the one that's going to go in. And, and he's like, I don't even know how to talk. And God is like, I don't, I'm not worried about that. You are the one. You've got to go back. You're going to be the one that leads my people out. And, and Moses says, well, who, who, who am I even supposed to say is sending me? God's answer is, tell them that I am has sent you. See, what that means is that God is the only one who is completely self-reliant and self-sufficient. He is dependent on nothing and no one. And so God, God is the one who was and is and will be. He is the I am. And so Jesus, using these words now, and throughout John, we've seen Jesus use that for identifiers, right? Of saying, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am, and so there's seven ways that Jesus uses that. But now he's not pointing to you know, a metaphor of how he relates to his people. Instead, Jesus is standing and proclaiming that he is, saying, I am. And so they fell to the ground and he said again, Who, whom do you seek? And again they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you. I am. God's word has power. And the same God, again, who had a plan to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, had a plan to save us from our own sin, and nothing could stop it. And so I know that my heart needs this reminder regularly. Because in my own perfectionism, I, I, don't, I know that theolo theologically I would never say God's plans and the outworking of them are contingent on my life. I know that's foolishness. But functionally, do you live that way? Like, do you feel like you've got to get it right? And this is why, like, we feel like when, we're, when we feel like we're getting stuff right and stuff doesn't go like we want it to, we get upset with God. Because we're like, God, I have a plan for my life, and this is not it. And we have this sense that can be crushing of like, like I don't, I don't want to mess this up. And we, th this comes up with big decisions in life. Like, what is God's, where does God have a plan for me to go to school? Am I going to mess up God's plan if I don't choose the right one? Does God have a plan for one person that I'm supposed to marry? And how do I discover that one person in the midst of seven billion people? Do, you know, what if... I choose the wrong church. Is, God, is that going to mess up God's plan? What if I choose the wrong job? What if, what if I choose the wrong place to live? Is that going to mess up God's plan? You cannot mess up God's plans. Now, this isn't fatalism. This isn't determinism. It's not that we are just robots. You are a free-acting creature created with freedom of will. But the Bible maintains a tension that our theological systems too easily resolve. There, it's, it's a compatibilism that, that it is not contradictory to say God is wholly sovereign. He knows all things, has power over all things, and his plans cannot fail. And you are completely responsible for your own life. The choices you make and the consequences of those choices are your responsibility. Both are true. And, and when you look back at life, I know it's the case for me that that times when I have been most fearful about whether I would mess up God's plans and times when I've been most confident that I really had messed up God's plans, I then can look back at and realize and see his guiding and directing hand on a pathway even when it's through the valley of the shadow of death. That he's brought me to places and to green pastures I wouldn't have chosen and wouldn't have gotten to. Because I can't mess up his plan. This is something that the movie Soul gets right. 
you've seen that. It's, it's great. I, this is not a theological endorsement for their vision of the afterlife. <laughs> but it's a great movie. Because, and one of the things they get right is this idea, this obsession of that we must have a single purpose in life. My purpose in life is to play piano or jazz. My purpose in life. And, and we get caught up in this idea as if there's only one thing that we were created to do. And, and there's this push back against that in that movie saying, saying what if we about it dif- thought about it differently? What if we thought about it differently? And instead of having like only a purpose so that we can either mess up life or not, or not mess up life so that like in souls, like if they don't discover their purpose, they don't even get to go to have a life, which again, not endorsing that theologically. But what if instead we looked at what sparks passion inside of us? What if instead of trying to determine the, the solo plan that might be God's for our life, we just enjoyed the life that he's given us, enjoyed the place that he's brought us, and enjoyed the journey, and enjoyed whatever sparks within us that it, it draws us closer to Christ is the thing that we should focus most on. And that if we find something that's an intersection of our skill set and the things we care about and a need that we can meet, then that is a sweet spot where we can find rest and joy and where our lives can make an impact. Like, we, you are responsible for every decision in your life, and God is sovereign, so rest in that. Because we, can, we will miss God's plan at times. Peter missed it, completely misunderstood what God was doing. But he couldn't mess it up. Jesus didn't come to this point and go like, oh, man, the guy I said I was going to build the church on just denied me. There goes that plan. Uh, Maybe we'll turn to Thaddeus. God's plans are infallible. God's plans have never failed. God's plans are not failing now. God's plans cannot fail, and they will not fail. We, we will miss God's plan and fail to obey and fail to hear his voice. We'll miss God's plan, but we can't mess it up. And Peter here, like this is the, the irony with Peter too. His name, Simon, means the one who hears. This is, my son is named Simon because, um, because in our prayer for him, his whole life has been, that he would be a man who is tough and tender and who will hear God's voice in his life. He's the one who hears, and he still misses what Jesus has to say to him in saying, like, you know, I've got to go somewhere, and he's like, I'm going to follow you to death. And Jesus says, no, you're not. And so we miss God's plans, but we can't mess it up. Second, distance from Jesus will lead to our downfall. Now, Peter does follow Jesus. Kinda. <laughs> now, what should he have done? Well, it, when Jesus said, let these men go, maybe Peter should have stuck with the other disciples at that point. Jesus had protected him, and it says explicitly that this is because Jesus had just prayed to the Father, hey, of those whom you've given me, I haven't lost a single one, just like you asked, Father, um, except for that one son of destruction, but that needed to happen. He says, I haven't lost anybody. And so this was to fulfill that. It says that Jesus said, let these men go. But Peter didn't take Jesus' protection. Instead, he rebelled against Jesus' protection, where Jesus brought peace and gave himself up. Peter decided to give himself up in Jesus' place. There is never a time 
that God is asking you to be the sacrificial savior for others. Jesus has done that. That is not your job. And so Peter here steps in, takes a strike, and then after, after Jesus calms that down, he, he was well-intentioned. He, he, he had to have been hearing at this point that those words like, follow me, and Jesus, I'm going to a place where you can't follow. And Peter, still having that, like, that passion of like, no, I'm going to follow him. You know, he said this thing but, that, that I would deny him, but I'm, I'm never going to deny him. I would give my life for him, and he follows him. And, but, but you notice that, that he follows him, and it's a place that he can't get into on his own. Now, I don't know what connection John had with the high priest and the high priest's family or the servant girl, but he was able to get in, and so he was there, but, but he went and let Peter in. But even at the gate, when the servant girl asked him, like, and she asked this, the, the connotation of the Greek text here is, is almost disdain. Like, I mean, like it says here, like, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Like, John was his in to the high priest's courtyard. Of course he was one of his disciples. What does Peter think he's covering here? But to a servant girl, no, 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 I am not. So he followed him into a place he didn't belong. John was able to hear Jesus' words, but do you notice what Peter did? The servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. and, And Peter went with them, standing and warming himself. the irony of that strike you at all these were the guys with torches that peter had just taken a hack at one of their heads and now peter when he gets into the courtyard doesn't go to where jesus is doesn't stand up for jesus as a witness in this trial where jesus is saying hey people have bring people that have heard me i've been in the public instead peter falls back into the shadows and stands with Those who arrested Jesus, he stands with the enemy to warm himself by a fire. Now, there's only two places that John mentions a charcoal fire, and the next is going to be important, but we'll hold that to chapter 21. Peter didn't follow Jesus' command to rest in his protection, and he thought he was following Jesus, but the whole way he had a, a, a proximity to Jesus while denying him. And that distance that increased over time cultivated the circumstances for Peter's denial. Like you get to the, to the end of it when he denies the second and third time and it says, you know, Peter was standing and warming himself and then he's like in the midst of them and, and in some places, some translations it talks about sitting, like he just got farther and farther. And so why did, why did he do this? Well, I think the same issues Peter faced are the issues that we face now, that there was a reality that he had a fear of man. Like, he, he was scared of the people there. He was scared of the servant girl. He was scared of the group of soldiers because he just watched them arrest Jesus. He was scared of the one soldier that was related to Malchus. And he was more fearful of them than he was confident in Jesus' protection. He had an overconfidence in, his, in, in himself. Saying, what do you mean, Jesus, that I won't follow you? I'm going to die for you. And he had a lack of prayer and watchfulness. If you go read other accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane that talks about Jesus praying there, that three times he went to his disciples and, said, and just said, please stay awake with me. Be watchful. This night is important. And he'd come back and they, would be, they were sleeping. Hey guys, can you wake up? Please stay awake with me. Be watchful. But Peter had lacked prayer and watchfulness. 
And so these are things we fall into. We get afraid of people. And Jesus had said, don't be afraid of those who can harm your body. Be afraid of the one who, can, who is responsible for your body and soul for eternity. We get overconfident in ourselves. I know who I am. I'm with Jesus. I'm not going to let that go. And we lack prayer and watchfulness in our lives. And so in that, as we, as we get afraid of people, as we get overconfident in ourselves, and as we lack that prayer and watchfulness and coming into God's presence, that increases the distance that we have from Jesus over time, and that distance will lead to our downfall in time. So it's the question, are you resting in Jesus' protective love today, or are you working so hard to follow him that you're ending up in proximity to Jesus without connection with him? Are you, are you growing in, in distance as you settle your life in comfortably with the enemy, warming yourself by another's fire? And so distance from Jesus will lead to our downfall. And third, we will fail, but there is mercy and hope in Jesus. John is the only one to mention that one of the soldiers was related to Malchus, whose, Peter, whose head Peter tried to take off. Now, Matthew, Mark talks about um, oaths and curses that Peter made about his not knowing Jesus. And so John doesn't talk about that. Um, Luke talks about that as soon as the rooster crowed, Jesus' eyes met Peter's, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so that's one of the details that Luke gives us. But, but Peter realized his sin at that moment. And that's where we need to begin, that, that Peter was blind to his own failure up to this point. Like, isn't that amazing that, that as we read this and you get to the first denial with the servant girl and you're going like, Jesus just told you you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And now you show up and the servant girl goes, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he's like, I am not. <laughs> like, there, nothing registers in Peter's brain there because he's so tunnel visioned on what he thinks he's got to accomplish. Then, or maybe he had just dismissed it, but whatever the case, he didn't see it. He didn't get it until the rooster crowed. He, he went through three rounds of this. And so we need to hear this because when, when we are caught in sin, and it, we are often blind to it, and it takes something dramatic to wake us up, and some of us need a wake-up call today. There's a contrast here that one theologian pointed out, a, a dramatic contrast where Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Now, we need to kill our perfectionism and put it to death because we will fail in our lives, but it should never be hard for a Christian to confess sin. Like, we get defensive when people come to us and say, like, you did this wrong. We go, like, no, I didn't, and we want to fight, just like Peter here. Rather than saying, like, like what, if, what if instead, Charles Spurgeon talks about this, that when his worst critics would come to him, it, it didn't even need to all be true. Because often there's gr grains and kernels of truth in our worst critics, in our worst accusers, but, but it's often laced with a bunch of other stuff that might not be. And so we, get to, to, we have a tendency to focus on the details of things rather than try to find any kernel there. But, but Spurgeon would say to his worst critics, oh, yes, I'm, you've only got the half of it. I'm much worse than you think. Like, we, we should be able to, like, there's a reality that if you are a Christian, what you are saying is, I can earn nothing before God. The only hope I have is that Christ came and paid my penalty and died in my place for my sin. Like, Jesus outed all of us on the cross that we can't earn our way to God, and we have nothing to offer for our own salvation. So it shouldn't be hard for us to say, you know what? I sinned. 
and thank God I have a Savior. Like, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But if you belong to Jesus, you've seen this over and over again, nothing can take you from his hands. Not even your own failure. Even while in chains, Jesus here is sovereign over all things. Do you see that? Like, Jesus was able to be sovereign over a rooster crowing at exactly the right moment. And in the meantime, Peter can't, couldn't comprehend that Jesus was there and that, that I know what I need to hear today, that, that we, he could not comprehend that he was not the one who had to follow Jesus and wasn't responsible to die for Jesus for the salvation of others. What Peter needed to hear is that he could not actually follow Jesus and fulfill that call until Jesus had died for him. Because even when we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. And so this isn't the last we hear of Peter. But he does disappear from the story until after the resurrection. Peter's story wasn't done. And Jesus still had plans for him. In Luke 22, when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him, he, he also said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the hope Peter has. It's not in his perfection. It's not in his desire to, you know, his confidence that he's going to follow Jesus. It's not in his, his passion to be Jesus' personal bodyguard as if, the one who can calm the winds and the, and the waves needs a bodyguard. It's that Jesus has prayed for him, that while Satan is working for his destruction, that Jesus has a plan for him. Warren Wearsby said, in the garden that night, you would find both guilt and grace. Peter was guilty of resisting God's will. Judas was guilty of the basest kind of treachery. The mob was guilty of rejecting the son and treating him as though he were the lo lowest kind of criminal. But Jesus was gracious. Like King David, he crossed the Kidron fully conscious that Judas was betraying him. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane, surrendered to the Father's will. He healed Malchus's ear. He protected his disciples. He yielded himself into the hands of sinners that he might suffer and die for us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. And so here's the hope for us today. Where you have slipped up, where you have failed, admit it, confess, repent and turn to Jesus, the one who gave himself up for you. Your failure, however catastrophic and public or quiet and personal, doesn't mean that God is done with you. Jesus has a plan for you, but you've got to rest in his work for you, in his prayer for you, in his sovereignty and faithfulness. And trust that even when we mess it up, even when we are faithless, Jesus is faithful in love to save and continually prays for us. And so turn to him and rest in him today. Stop working so hard to follow him. 
Yes, you're called to holiness. Yes, your life will look more like Jesus as you walk with him. Yes, the spirit will move in you to sanctify you and, and pull you to greater personal holiness. All of these things are important, but it's not just by working harder. It's by resting in the presence of Jesus that that will actually come through you and for you. So don't have proximity without actual connection. Trust that Jesus is faithful. Let's pray. Father, this is our only hope. And it's so hard to believe because we so want to be in control. So I pray today that you would move in our hearts to be able to recognize our own failure, to be able to recognize our own sin, to be able to recognize where we miss it. I pray that you would expose in us where we've missed your plans and give us the trust that we can't mess them up, but that we can turn back to Jesus. I pray that you would help us to be able to trust that you really do forgive, that we could extend that kind of grace and forgiveness to others as we, as we see our own need. We pray that as we as we follow Jesus, you would help us more to rest in his protecting love than to work, to earn it, or to defend him. And so I pray that you'd move in our hearts today in the name of Jesus. Amen.